Welcome to episode number 36 of the Live Life Aggressively podcast with Mike Mahler and Sincere Hogan. And got a great guest with us today. And as you guys know that Mike and I are true MMA fans. I mean, we're pretty much talking about all the upcoming shows almost every week. And some of you have actually kind of called us out on some of our predictions, but that's another show in, in itself right there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I think, I think my predictions are pretty spot on. I don't know about Mike's. But your, your, saying, your, prediction, no, your predictions are pretty good, man. In fact, half the time I wait for you to tell me what yours are, and then I go place my bets. <laughs> hey, man, I'll, I think you should start sharing some of that money. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll do that. We'll do that. For sure. no, well, no, I don't know. I think you picked – what did you pick? Who, who did you pick that lot? Oh, you picked Hendricks, who I think won too, but I did put money on G. GSP, so I was happy that went my way. <laughs> Damn you. <laughs> so, so speaking of welterweights, man, we have one on the phone right now. Yeah, we have James Wilkes on the phone right now, who was the winner of the Ultimate Fighter several seasons ago. And so, James, you actually fought Matt Brown at one point, and he's fighting Carlos Condit this weekend. So as a guy who's had some experience fighting Matt, I'm curious what your prediction is for that fight this Saturday. Yeah, what's up, guys? Thanks for having me on. Um Pleasure. You know, I think uh, Matt Brown is a real tough fighter, um, but I think Carlos Condit has, has got a little bit of extra skill on him. So uh, I, I, my pick would be Carlos Condit in this fight. I mean, I broke Matt Brown's shoulder with a Kimura. Uh, the doctor told me after the fight, but he kept on fighting at the end. If you, if you watch the fight, you see him hitting, hitting me with only one arm. So oh, yeah, I agree with he, that. Basically, he basically finished me. Uh, I think he threw one punch with his left after that and realized his shoulder was broken and kept punching me with the right. So he's a real tough dude, oh, yeah. um, but so is Carlos Condit, but I think uh, you've got to give the edge to Carlos Condit on the skill level. Okay, interesting. That's a good food for thought there as I, as I go to the <laughs> betting table later this <laughs> week. <laughs> also, uh, I'm curious, how, you, how did you get started with this whole MMA career? I know you're retired now, but you you were you were, you yeah. fought as an MMA fighter for many years. So I'm just curious how that whole thing started. Well, my uncle was a uh, fighter when I was younger, so I started. He was a national karate champion uh, in England. We ended up winning the uh, Kikushinkai Karate, which is the same style that GSP did. Um, he ended up getting in 1986 the fastest knockdown with the spinning heel kick to a guy's temple, knocked him out in 4.6 seconds. Wow. Um, so I was sort of inspired by my uncle and I was into Bruce Lee and did a little bit of karate for a couple of years when I was eight, nine, uh, and then I ended up stopping and then really got into martial arts when I was 15, Taekwondo. And by the time I went to university, I was doing more martial arts than studying for my uh, degree. And that's another thing. I think the misconception of a lot of fighters, a lot of times, you know, people who are watching on the outside who are really not old school fans. They think that, oh, these guys are just brutal. They're just a lot of guys off the street and they're thugs and all this. But, hey, man, you have, like, a, a really, like, high-skilled degree right there, man. I think the uh, – I think that I read the majority of USC fighters have uh, at least a bachelor's degree, apparently. So right. I'm right. not sure if that's true, but I heard that over 50% did. So, yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions, obviously, especially like throw people in a cage, which makes it look uh, even more brutal. But really, right. the, a cage is a lot safer than a ring. So it's got sort of a bit of a brutal image, but doesn't mean the fighters are, uh, are not intelligent. So. Why, why is a cage safer than a ring? Well, the main, the main reason is, obviously, with the takedowns, there's a lot of driving up against to whatever barrier would be in the way. And, and a ring is obviously elevated, for one, and there's no padding outside of the ring. So, right. so with the takedowns, you know, people can get driven through the ropes and end up falling onto the floor. So the cage in my opinion, is quite a bit safer in terms of those takedowns, stopping people from falling out, you know, onto the floor below. So, Yeah, I very reminiscent of some of those fights from Pride back in the day. You see guys going right through the ropes. 
<laughs> right, and and the head thumps as well. I mean, oh yeah, pretty wow. crazy. How did how did this whole opportunity with the Ultimate Fighter come your way? Uh, I, I sent a video in for season two. I flew out for uh, season three trials in New York. Didn't have any luck. Uh, you know, probably just wasn't the right time for me, and I'm glad I didn't make it then. Right. And then 2009 came around. Uh, well, sort of towards the end of 2008, and I was turning 30 years old. And I thought, you know, I, I'm watching The Ultimate Fight to say season seven or something, season eight. And, you know, I said, I can beat these guys. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to give it one last shot, see if I can get in the UFC. So I had a couple of fights. I won the Gladiator Challenge uh, Welterweight Championship. And then I was training with Joe Stevenson for one of his fights. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget who was fighting, but I went up for a week camp and helped him out. He said I was the only guy that ever tapped him out in MMA sparring. He'd obviously been caught in jiu-jitsu. Everyone gets caught. But in MMA sparring, he hadn't been caught before. And, uh, they, you know, they call the people from the show that have won previous seasons, and they say, who do you recommend? So Joe Stevenson put, you know, my name forward, and I ended up going out to Vegas for the, for the uh, secondary trials. Uh, managed to skip the first trials and uh, got in that way. So, you know, a great opportunity for me. Quite lucky, really, to get in. Right. And what was it like uh, working with Michael Bisping during that season, man? Yeah, he was actually a, a lot nicer than I thought he'd be. Um, obviously, he's got a bit of an attitude sometimes, and that's right. you know, based on where he's been raised, really, and what it's like in the streets where he lives, mm-hmm. um, or where he used to live, because now he lives in Orange County. But uh, it's just sort of a product of where he's from, so I didn't think much of him before the show. Right. But he was a, a nicer guy than I thought he'd be, and he was also a better fighter and a, a much better coach than I thought he'd be. So it right. actually worked out really well. Yeah. How about living, how about living in the house? That, that had to be, <clears throat> that had to be kind of a downer, right? It's going to be yours. You're yeah, taken away from your family. <laughs> yeah, so no, no TV, no books, no internet, no phone. Um, you know, you, you can order as much food as you want, but you can't order any, you know, I try to order a pack of cards to play a game. They wouldn't let you have that. Wow. Really? So, uh, oh, really? <laughs> I end up making a chessboard out of bottle tops and you know, the cardboard. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So uh, sort of different configurations of the bottle tops would be different pieces. And I've actually still got that on my uh, uh, at my house in the living room. It's uh, signed by, you know, Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta and all the British team and all the American team. And so I've still got that to this day. How much drama do they try to initiate there? Is it, I mean, is it totally organic where cameras are just following you around? Or is there yeah, any anything provoked? I know some reality shows really aren't, you know, that much reality. But right. honestly, there was no uh, provocation. There was n- nothing other than giving us alcohol, which, I, you know, I don't drink. But other than giving the house plenty of alcohol in order to fuel things, right. there was really no direction. No one ever sort of really instigated anything. Um you know, they never told us which rooms to go in or which rooms to be next to the guys to try and instigate things. There was none of that. So it really was all organic. Now, did it really take some t- getting used to having a camera just follow you every freaking place that you go, man? Yeah, it took a, took a couple of days. I mean, you're sitting on a toilet, and there's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's literally a camera in every, you know, bathroom and restroom uh, oh, wow. looking down at you. And, uh, oh, man. Yeah, and then, you know, when you wake up, sometimes you wake up and you open your eyes and there's a camera right there in your face. So for a few days, you know, it takes a while to get used to it. And then, you know, after that, you don't even realize the, the camera guys are there. So. What was the thing that annoyed you the most about being in the house? Uh, not seeing my, well, my fiance at the time, who's now right, my wife. Right. Um, that was pretty difficult. But uh, I managed to sneak out a few messages and, <laughs> and get on a phone call or two. 
um, sort of sneaky little ways of getting out to those guys, to my, to my wife, through uh, some of the crew, but I don't want to say any names because I'll get them in trouble. Yeah. I always think I always think the alcohol thing is kind of funny that they would supply that, right? Because you're bringing on professional athletes to compete in an event for a contract, and then you're saying, oh, also, we're going to provide you with as much alcohol as you want <laughs> in case you want to blow this opportunity. You know? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think a few of them blew it, but the, the most annoying thing is when guys had fought and they were out. Right, right. Yeah. Got to my season, in, pre, in earlier seasons, if you were out, you went home. Right. Well, yeah. in my season, by the time we got to my season, if you were out of the competition, you were still there in the house, which was a bit of a nightmare. You know, so guys then would start drinking, and the penultimate night, so the, the night before my my uh, fight that was still in the house, not the finale, but the night in the house, uh, was a real nightmare because there was only four of us left to fight, and what twelve twelve people that were getting completely hammered. You know, so they were up right. at like three or four in the morning, shouting, screaming, getting naked, and you know whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a fight the next day, so that that was probably the worst night that that last night there. In the is, there is there are there are there is there a lot of pranking and stuff like that going on? Because I have to imagine that just from sheer boredom, you know, you get a bunch of guys around. There's always going to be that anyway. But when you yeah, put especially. it in the context of that show, there's no TV, there's no computer. And you're, you're kind of stuck in this environment where you can't communicate with anyone else outside of that house for a pretty long period of time. Unless you got characters like Demarcus Johnson and guys like that in the house, right? Because he already sounds, he already seemed like he was just a straight up clown anyway, just always a prankster, always smiling and laughing, man. So what was yeah. that like? Um, there was I, no no one did too much against me. It's more the younger guys in the house. You know, I was one of the older guys, so. No one really pranked me too much, but um, there was a few, and I know there's definitely been some in, in earlier seasons, like with Mac Danzig, you know, because it was vegan food. People were putting stuff in his food, like uh, right. pissing in his food or whatever. Right. That wasn't too yeah. cool, but there wasn't really too much in, too much in our season. And what was it like being the older guy in the house, probably a little bit more experienced than a lot of the younger guys? I mean, did some of the guys look towards you more as, as pretty much like a leader, or just for advice and just kind of like, hey, man, you know, I'm just, I'm just now getting into this. Some of them probably didn't even have records yet. And did they ever turn to you for guidance or anything like that, Jay? Um, I think, you know, some of them might have looked up to me a little bit, although we were a pretty cohesive team. We all sort of worked together and sort of it wasn't like everyone was looking towards one person per se. We were kind of all helping each other out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I kind of went in there feeling a little bit cocky going into the British team because I was thinking, well, you know, the, the last time I went back to England and rolled with people, uh, even guys that were in the UFC at the time, you know, to me, they felt like white belts. And I, I just thought the UK grappling wasn't very good, but that was kind of like five years earlier. So when I went to the house, I thought, well, I'm going to smash up on my team. I'm not going to get any good training for the grappling portion. And I was actually completely wrong. A lot of the guys were really skilled. And so some of them, you know, had, didn't have too many fights. I think there's a three-fight minimum now, to uh, three, three fights on your record to get into the Ultimate Fighter. But, you know, I, don't, I think some people sort of looked at me for a little bit of experience, but... Overall, we kind of all just shared uh, different tricks and tips, and we all helped each other, so that was great. Yeah, you went on to win that season, of course, and then you went into the UFC. How, how was that? What did, you, you must have had a kind of a preconception of what it would be like to be in the UFC. What surprised you the most when you actually got into the UFC and started competing? Um, I think mainly the shock of the huge crowd, you know, like 20,000 people walking out. Right. Right. Um, for me, the Ultimate Fighter was a nice sort of stepping stone because I'd fought in things like King of the Cage, where it was like three or four thousand, and you know it's obviously a little bit lower production budget and value there. But 
I think going into the Ultimate Fight, it was a nice transition. You got to fight in the UFC Octagon, and there was Dana White and Lorenzo and all the cameras, but there was no crowd. So you got to fight in the Octagon three times in, like, the Ultimate Fighter gym, you know, before going in front of the crowd. So that was, like, made, I think it made the step a little bit easier psychologically for me. And then, you know, I, you know, I sort of not really meditated on it, but I really thought about it a lot, is that I try and re- think of all the cameras and all the lights and all the crowd as a bit of a facade. And like, mm-hmm. if this guy came into my gym, you know, and we're training to fight every day, I wouldn't be nervous at all. So I try to override all those nerves of, of that huge crowd and the lights and the cameras. Um, just think, oh, that's just a facade. It's the same guy that I'd be fighting if he if he walked into my gym right now. Right. And I kind of try to deal with it that way. Right. Did, did you did you find that effective? Because mm-hmm. I have to imagine that <clears throat> there must be a lot of adrenaline energy already for going into a fight, and then on such a large scale. It must, if you're not careful, I think you could burn a lot of energy before you even get into the ring. Yeah, it totally affects your performance. I mean, no I've doubt. never felt like I've performed the same, you know, in the cage fighting as I have in the gym. You know, so a lot of guys like that. Some guys are really good on fight night, and you, you train within the gym. Like, I've seen guys on TV and UFC, and they come into the gym, and you're like, are you serious? These guys are in the UFC? <laughs> and you go, watch them on TV, and like, wow, they're smashing guys, you know? So right. some guys are just you know, somehow perform really well on the night. For me, I never felt like I really performed up to my standard, and I felt like I did a bit better in the gym. But it definitely helped. And actually, I think at one point in the last couple of fights, it really had gone the other way, where I'd become too calm and sort of indifferent about the whole thing. Right. Um, and it got a little bit too relaxed, you know, and didn't get pumped up enough. So I kind of, like, took it a little bit too far. So you got to find that balance between, like, right. maintaining that aggressiveness, but, you know, sort of staying in that... Uh, maintaining that alertness and uh, relaxation at the same time. Yeah, I was just about to ask you, like, what was your pre-fight ritual before going out there? Because sometimes you will see guys in the back, they're rolling and they're going, and then you see some guys just kind of sitting in the corner to themselves. Looks like they're meditating, they have their headphones on. Seems like they're almost like they're about to fall asleep in the corner over there. So yeah, I'm just wondering, like, what was your pre-fight ritual? Yeah, I would, um, you know, I'd get pretty warmed up, pretty get a good sweat on, you know, hit the pads, do a little bit of grappling with the, with the, the usual guys. Uh, Eric Paulson, one of my coaches, and Mike Diamond, the Joker, who also fought in UFC and Bellator. I get warm and then like let it cool down a little bit. You know, do a little bit more and then let it calm down a little bit just before I went in. Um, you know, I'm asthmatic, so I always take the inhaler before I go out. Um, usually do a little bit of caffeine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like an hour before the fight, and uh, you know, stay hydrated. That was basically it. Now, being an ex-asthmatic myself, like, how do you, how did training in MMA help you with your asthma because a lot of times when we're when we're little you know a lot of people tell us like you can't do athletics you can't participate in sports because you have asthma you might die you be short of breath but what i ended up finding out from one of my doctors he actually told me by playing football was probably the best thing for my lungs that i could ever do and it helped me grow out of my asthma and it really helped me this as for you being an asthmatic how has it helped you as well with coping with asthma um i think it's definitely helped you know staying in shape and, and working out a lot has helped me but i you know i still have it unfortunately mm-hmm. and um sometimes it's been you know the weather makes a big difference for me if it's really cold and that right. was a problem before the ufc fighting in some of these smaller shows sometimes it would be midnight and mm-hmm. you'd be fighting you know the, like they set up the cage and the chairs in a parking lot of a casino or whatever you know and it's freezing cold and you know i've had asthma you know pretty bad a couple of times during a couple of my fights you know prior to the ufc Right. Um, I mean, staying in shape definitely helped, but, you know, it does affect me, and I've always needed that inhaler before a fight, unfortunately, and 
I do feel it's, it's been detrimental throughout all of my sort of athletic you know, career or endeavors. Um, sometimes it affects me, sometimes it doesn't. But I definitely felt like being in shape helps, helps quite a bit. Well, when did you make the decision to retire from professional MMA? What happened there? So basically, I had a nine-fight contract with the UFC after the finale. And mm-hmm. I ended up only doing three of those fights. And in 2011, I was supposed to fight. I, I stepped in on short notice. Uh, Dwayne Ludwig uh, was supposed to fight Amir Sadala, and he got injured, I think, three weeks before the fight. So I, they said, are you in shape? I said, yeah, I'm in pretty good shape. So I, um, you know, I got three weeks to get ready. Let's start you know, really hitting it hard for a couple of weeks and then taper off that last week. And a week into that training, I was sparring with Fabrizio Fadum, you know, who's mm-hmm. at the time oh, yeah, he was sure. top, top five or top ten heavyweights in the world. Yeah. You know, obviously he got like 100 pounds on me, uh, which isn't wise. And I'd only just started training at that gym. And uh, we were sparring, and I was sort of tagging him, and he was getting a little bit angry and annoyed and ended up sort of charging me. And uh, he did a flying knee, which took me off the floor. And we were supposed to just be kickboxing, but basically I landed on the floor, my knees, my feet slipped out on some sweat, and then the sweat kind of stopped, and my feet got stuck, and he basically sprawled on top of me. His chest was kind of on top of my head. And uh, my LCL on one knee and my MCL on the other knee tore. Oh. And so I was unable to fight Amir Sadala, unfortunately, and then I got replaced, I think, by you know, Demarcus Johnson. Yeah, Demarcus. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of put me out for quite a while. You know, it took like six months before I could even really get into training, and it was like a year before I was really, or at least you know, nine months before I was ready to go. So I started training a little bit more, and started training beginning of 2012. You know, getting ready to fight again, and smashed my head on the wall. And I'd been having some neck pains. In, in one of my fights against uh, Peter Sabota, I got punched, and the whole left side of my body had gone numb. Mm. So, like, literally, like, my mm. arm, I got that tingling down my arm and left torso all the way down to my toes. And I couldn't control my left side for about 10 seconds in the fight. So I faked the right hand, you know, hoping that it would come back, and he kind of stepped back, and it, and it kicked back in. So I knew I had neck problems, um, but I didn't know how bad they really were. And I'd broken my neck when I was younger playing rugby, uh, like a fracture in the cervical vertebra, pretty badly. And so I went to get an MRI in 2012, and they said, look, you've got severe stenosis, which is basically the narrowing of a canal. So the, the area around my spinal cord, there should be sort of a gap inside that vertebra there. So when you get hit, you know, the vertebra's got, uh, the, so the spinal cord's got some space to move. Yeah. And basically my bones have grown inwards, you know, from the front, from the back, from the side. The vertebra's grown in from that when I fractured my neck. And it's got worse and worse over the years, and it's touching the spinal cord. So, you know, I got a second opinion, third opinion, fourth opinion, someone hoping to say, no, you're fine, keep fighting. But they all said you've got a significant risk of paralysis. So uh, ended up medically retiring with six fights left on the contract, which was obviously a bit of a bummer. Right. Yeah. What happens with those fights? In terms of compensation, I don't know if you can talk about it, but what happens compensation-wise when you have yeah, to? Yeah, basically, yeah, I can talk about it. Yeah, uh, okay. no, no, nothing. I mean, basically, you know, I just leave the contract based on medical retirement. You know, I don't get any money for those fights if I'm not going to take them. So. Oh, okay, of course. So you you were you weren't paid it. You weren't paid for ten fights ahead of time. Basically, you were just no, giving no. It. They basically, you know, everyone thinks you know the contract. Oh, it's a six-figure contract, but it's basically right. based on how well you perform. Right. And you get a little bit of right. money for winning the show, and then you, 
you know, I think it gets better every season, but, you know, you, you uh, in my season, the first year was like 15 to show and 15 to win, and it kind of goes up each year. But uh, I was, you know, that, there was no penalty for me pulling out because it was medical retirement and there was no, right. uh, you know, no income from them either. So, I think a lot of people don't realize how tough it is to make a good living, even as a professional fighter, because you're only fighting a few times a year. So they may hear, oh, 15,000 to show, 15 to win, that's great. But if you're only fighting three times a year, it doesn't really add up to right. too much, especially when you yeah, have to pay. Yeah, like, so, exactly. And, you know, my, yeah. my contract was three fights a year, but because of injuries, I only ended up fighting twice a year. And in 2009, right. I fought twice. In 2010, I fought twice. So you only fight twice a year, you know, and then people think, oh, it's like 15 minutes. But no, first of all, it's been right, like right. 15 years of training. And then second of all, you know, it's like much more intense training in the last few years. And then, you know, those three months leading up to it is serious intense training where you can't really do anything else. So right. and that's when you've made it to the UFC, what to speak of, like, you know, working your way up there. And, and right. some UFC fighters are getting a lot less than that, too. You know, obviously, right. there's some guys, the top guys getting a lot, lot more. But there's definitely some disparity there between what someone's getting paid in the same show as maybe the guy who's headlining it. So not necessarily an easy uh, career path by any means. And also, you know, what you've got to think of is it's quite short term, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of guys, they start making like 100, 150, 200 grand for the year. And they think, you know, they start buying nice cars or, right. you know, put money down <laughs> on a house. And they're not really looking long term. Like they fight for three or four years and then what? You know, so if they haven't got other plans or education or, you know, the drive to do something else or turn it into a gym or whatever, then, you know, they could really get screwed in the end. I think that's the problem with money. You know, we talk about this all the time. And the perception of money rather is you start making a certain income, you automatically assume that you're always going to make that or more. Right, that's what you start right. thinking. You don't realize it can go the other way as well, especially right. in your in your former line of work. You can easily go the other way, and then if you don't have a next step, you're you're just out of luck. I mean, what what happens to someone who gets into the UFC and has maybe a moderate level of success, never really hits the big time, and then they their career is over? You know, what what can they transition into next? They open up a facility and stuff like that. Maybe if they have a certain amount of notoriety, that'll help get people in the door. But I have to imagine it's just it's all too easy to just have a really hard time afterwards trying to adjust into something else. Right. Well, you know, there's a couple of factors there. One thing is, you know, not all good fighters are good coaches. So yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Transition that into you know into something else. And then the other thing for me was, you know, it's a bit of a catch-22. Do I start building my gym now? Uh, and then so once I stop fighting, I've got something already started building or at least built, so I've got some sort of income, or do I wait and, you know, put all my effort into fighting in a bit of a gamble that I'm going to become, like, one of the top ten and get paid, you know, 100 grand a fight or 200,000 a fight? And so, you know, I actually set up the gym knowing that I'd got to the finale of The Ultimate Fighter while the TV show was being aired, but as I was walking out to the finale, I was thinking – I really haven't trained properly. I've been setting up a gym, <laughs> you know. Right. I was literally right. walking out thinking, what am I doing? Why did I, you know, I was doing insurance and buying the mats and the cage and the heavy bag and buying the front desk and, like, the toilet paper, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you've been organizing all that stuff, like the city permits. Like, that was my two months leading up to the Ultimate Fighter right. uh, finale. So you know, what do you do? Do you focus everything in the fighting and you've got nothing to fall back on? Or do you start something now, but you're trading off getting like full focus on the fighting? So that's the other thing is, uh, you know, where do you put your effort? And then afterwards, you know, for me, I'm 
sort of moved into sort of the nutrition field now. Uh, but right. I've also got my gym, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in Orange County. So, um, you know, it's tough for some people. I think they end up just going and getting a regular job in the end because, and especially in Orange County, I mean, there's so many martial arts gyms. It's not easy to just set up a gym and compete with, like, the 30 other gyms in the area, you know? Right. How, how have you distinguished yourself? Because you run a facility. How is I guess it's a twofold question. One, how is that transition for you going from professional fighter to running a facility and you're getting into nutrition as well, which we'll talk about in a second. And then how's that going for you? Um, I don't spend as much time at the gym now, but I've got, um, you know, another great co-head instructor there, which is uh, Joker, Mike Guyman, who is my longtime training partner and, and coach as well for all of my fights. Uh, so he coaches down there. You know, I think, in terms of, you know, us separating ourselves from other gyms in the area, what we've done is we've just got, you know, a really uh, diverse training program. So, you know, some of the gyms around here are just gi jiu-jitsu, and then some guys just do no gi jiu-jitsu, and some just do kickboxing. And there's a few sort of MMA gyms, but I don't think there's anywhere else in Orange County that's got gi and no gi and wrestling, you know, and, like, fitness classes with, the, like, the ropes and a sledgehammer and the tire flips and Mm-hmm. You know, all, all that stuff. So we've got, like, the whole gambit there. And so that's how we've kind of distinguished ourselves. And, you know, and just being there for the students and, and everyone down at the gym is really friendly and sort of building a good vibe. That's what we've kind of focused, focused on. Um, you know, and if any guys come in with bad attitudes, uh, which is very rare, but if they do, we would just kick them out. So just right. keeping, like, a friendly training environment and having a diverse training program and, and great instructors, that's what we've focused on. Yeah, and you're in Laguna Hills, right? Right. Yeah, South Orange what, County, but there's there's a lot around here. Right, mm-hmm. right. Did did winning the Ultimate Fighter help you with getting more people in the door? Did that help with, with building your practice? Oh yeah, we I mean we just literally opened right like a couple of weeks before the Ultimate Fighter finale, and then Joe Rogan mm-hmm. said afterwards, you know, he plugged the gym. And he's like, so where's your gym and what's the website? <laughs> and I think uh, the, the website had so many hits that night that it crashed. Right. <laughs> uh, that was like a great boost, you know. Yeah, right. And like the, right. the mat with the first couple of weeks, the mat was crazy. You know, there's no room. The gym wasn't big enough. But you know what it is. I mean, these guys like see people on TV, and they're like, "Oh, I want to go meet meet whoever's like the latest guy," you know. Right, and, right. Uh, mm-hmm. So you get a bunch of guys that aren't ever really going to train. They just want to say, "Oh yeah, I trained with uh, the Ultimate Fighter." You know? <laughs> so they're in there for like that free week, and then. Only the you know the hardcore guys end up staying, but you know anytime someone wins a fight around here, then a bunch of guys go and train with that guy. You know it's just just the way it is. Like yeah, someone gets a private lesson with Randy Couture one time, and, and, and <laughs> I trained with Randy Couture. Man. Yeah, yeah, I used to train with Randy back in the day. Yeah, one time. <laughs> back when right. I trained with Randy. <laughs> yeah, I tend to look. You know, when people talk about they've trained with so and so and so, and I just right, usually I look right. at their ears. You know, number one. And then uh, I look at how thick their neck is because that's like the two things for a fighter, right? Like any fighter's got a, usually a pretty solid neck, right? Because uh, of all the grappling and like cr- cr- cranking on the neck. And then you look at the ears. There's not many fighters that have got perfect ears or right. and and a thin neck. You know what I mean? So that's usually the giveaway sign for me <laughs> if someone says they train. Oh, we get it a lot in our business, too. Like, there'll be coaches who they may talk to an athlete for five minutes on the phone, and then they'll put that on their resume. Like, oh, here's one of the athletes I trained. You know, so yeah, people, right. people use these things really loosely. They'll say, oh, this coach is great. Look at all the people he's worked with. And if, if you know behind-the-scenes information, then you know that most of those people, it might have been like a one-time session or maybe it was a phone call or maybe they met 
over here for a few minutes. It wasn't right. what you're thinking where this athlete was under that person's care for months on end. Yeah, for some yeah I worked with Mike Tyson. No, you talked to him at a UFC fight. You know, <laughs> at your ringside. Yeah. You didn't work yeah. with Mike Tyson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Same with, like, the, the, uh, the self-protection, self-defense sort of field, which I've been in, you know, which is really my initial thing, really. I, my, the MMA was really, like, a side thing, you know, and oh. I, my, my focus was always, like, Bruce Lee's sort of mentality of, like, do whatever works for the street and, like, street self-defense. Mm-hmm. But MMA was, like, the closest thing where you could kind of test yourself. So my focus has always been street self-defense, you know, like weapons, firearms, knives, you know, sticks, whatever, gouging the eyes, headbutts, biting. And so, um, you know, in the self-defense field, you always get these guys saying, oh, yeah, I trained the Marines or I trained the Navy SEALs, and they've just got a couple of buddies that were Navy SEALs or they've got a friend, <laughs> you know. So through the years, I mean, I've trained, I don't know, like a 1,000 or more Marines that went into Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, been down trained the Navy SEALs and, um, outstanding contributions for drug law enforcement from the DEA. So, like, I've got certificates from all these guys proving it. Oh, um, cool. You know, rather than the guys that just say, yeah, I trained the Navy SEALs because they went and trained the people in the BUDS program one time or whatever. So Yeah, I mean, I've had a few SEALs come through my courses, but it would be quite a stretch for me to say, oh, I trained Navy SEALs based on that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like, or you got to you train with you train with a Navy SEAL that happened to train at the same CrossFit gym that you trained at. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I've trained with Navy right. SEALs. Like, we did a walk together. Come on, man. Yeah, we high-fived each other on the way in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you pro- – is that part of your business offering, James? You do self-protection as well? Is that one of the offerings that you're facilitating? Um, we, we were running a bit of a self-defense class. I've just been so busy with uh, the documentary that I'm working on that we'll probably talk right. about in a bit. But Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Um, I had to stop that, and so I only really offer the, the self-defense type stuff um, in private lessons, which I still do a little bit of. Um, but it's definitely something I'd like to incorporate more at the gym. Uh, we were doing it for a little bit, but uh, obviously you know, a lot of people are really into the MMA now. And MMA is, you know, for me, I think it's like 80% of what you need for self-defense, you know, having those right. attributes, right. the timing, the speed, the footwork. You know, because the, the problem with self-defense instructors is that they're like, they're teaching you how to swim, but they've never been in the water. You know what I mean? Right, and right. then the problem with MMA guys is that they're so stuck on the rules and focused on that that they're kind of missing the boat too. So the self-defense right. guys will kind of really focus on that and say, MMA guys, that's not real. That's Well, I tell you, it's a lot more real than most of what they're training. But the MMA guys also don't really get the self-defense thing, like multiple opponents and, you know, weapons right. and um, awareness training and verbalization and posturing and all these other things that we train. Right. So I feel like there's not many people around that can offer that sort of self-defense and, uh, and real, real, realistic fighting at the same time. So right. I still offer it in, in private sessions and still do a little bit with uh, government occasionally. Oh, very cool. Now let, let's talk about your nutrition background. You actually got into a plant-based diet a couple of years ago. I remember talking to you at Forks Over Knives premiere a couple yep. of years back. And what, what, what inspired you, one, to look into a plant-based diet, and then what has – because now it's something you're really into. You know, you're doing consulting on it. You're you're very well versed. Yeah, the, the same uh, injury that I talked about when I was training for uh, Amir Sadala. Right. You know, I basically was usually training two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. You know, going to the chiropractor, going to get massage. Like everything was like focused around training. And so when I got injured, you know, I was doing a little bit of rehab stuff. But other than that, I was basically stuck at home. And so I thought, well, how can I spend my time wisely? Right? I'm gonna. Mm-hmm. What can I do? I can't train. So, you know, the best thing for me as an athlete, well, I need to look at my nutrition. And so most of my nutrition knowledge and what I thought I knew 
uh, was basically, you know, reading blogs, reading websites, you know, magazines and stuff like that. And I was sort of doing the typical, like, extra lean turkey or lean chicken with brown rice and broccoli, eating that all the time, you know, maybe some oats. So I was eating, like, a pretty standard sort of diet that most people consider clean. Um, but I thought, well, right. I'll spend a little bit more time, you know, looking into it since I've been injured. And first of all, I thought, well, you know, what are we as athletes? We're like, we're made of, or as people, we're made of muscle and bones, basically, essentially, right? And it's, obviously, it's a lot more than that. But, and what it, as an athlete, muscle, okay, what's muscle made from? Protein, what's protein come from? comes from meat. You know, that was sort of my mindset at the time. And then sort of what's the most meatiest of meat? Well, steak. So let's start there. So I started looking at what's the best, you know, that was my sort of mindset at the time, what's the best uh, steak, what's the best red meat? So, you know, I started reading about the antibiotics and the hormones, and so I went and started buying grass-fed beef. You know, the omega-6, omega-3 ratio was much better, didn't have these hormones and antibiotics. So I thought I'd be good, you know, buy it from this guy that grows it locally in Orange County, um, grass-fed beef. I'm like, okay, I'm good. And then he's like, well, don't buy poultry, that's not fit for human consumption. And I was like, what are, you t- what are you talking about? And, I, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're selling beef. Obviously, you're going to say don't buy chicken, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I started looking into that, and then I, I realized that poultry had been banned from the, from the U.S. to be exported to the European Union for the last 13 years, um, mainly because it's dipped in chlorine uh, to clean it. After it's, after it's been mechanically gutted, a lot of the guts and the blood spill into the meat, right? So they clean it with uh, chlorine in the United States typically, whereas in England Mm. and and Europe, they air chill it. And the chlorine is about 50 times stronger than your swimming pool, the the, the chlorine in your swimming pool. And Europe, the European Union, recognizes it as a carcinogen, which means it causes cancer. So then I started buying this air chilled sort of, you know, free range. And I think, oh, free range is much better. Then you kind of look into like, what does free range mean? It doesn't really mean much. Right. Means they've got access right. to the outdoors. So usually you've got eighty thousand hens, you know, sitting in a barn, and they've got like two foot by two foot concrete space outside for eighty thousand hens, and that's free range. Right. You know, and or what is cage free? Or eighteen inches by eighteen inches or less is a cage. So you put them in an eighteen and a half by eighteen and a half inch cage, and it's cage free. You know, if you're talking about the eggs. Right. So it was really initially from uh, athletic performance and and health sort of benefit. Um, viewpoint and I started looking at that uh, and then I started realizing there's other problems with the meat it wasn't just that they were on antibiotics and hormones and it was grass fed um, there's all sorts of uh, carcinogens from, from the cooking uh, and, and simultaneously you know, I realized that there was ethical issues uh, you know, I was looking at the videos of how these animals were processed and really I just wasn't down with it so it was really a combination of like, the health and athletic performance and also the ethics and, and those arguments combined and if you add in the environment, of course, you know, those arguments combined, it's just pretty much a no-brainer for me to not eat the animal foods. Right. What were, what were how did you transition into it? Because you're, as you were saying, you, were, you ate a, you were kind of a meat and potatoes kind of guy to overly simplify it. So how did yeah. you transition from that into what you're doing now? And were there any difficulties with that process? Well, after I spent about a week researching uh, in 2011, I ended up reading over 1,000 hours uh, uh, looking at the peer-reviewed sort of medical literature on, on diet in 2011. Mm-hmm. But even in that first week, I realized, look, there's a lot of problems here. Um, I and mean, you've got these heterocyclic amines, uh, these polycyclic, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that are, you know, caused from cooking in, of the food. 
these bacterial endotoxins which survive the cooking process and cause inflammation in the arteries. You know, so I started seeing all this stuff, and I'm like, that's it. So I cut out, um, I cut out the meat right away, and I was still doing fish and eggs, and I had a little bit of uh, Greek yogurt left. So it's basically the reason, main reason is because it's still left in my house. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't want to waste the money. You know? so <laughs> it felt like it was a waste of food since it was already there. So uh, right. I cut out the meat, still did fish, eggs, and a bit, a bit of uh, non-fat yogurt for, for a couple of weeks. And then cut out all the dairy, and I was still doing a little bit of fish, a little bit of eggs. And then I cut out the fish, started you know, reading more about all the toxins. You obviously get uh, bioaccumulation of, of the toxins in the, in the smaller fish, and then it, it biomagnifies as you go up the food chain, and it causes a lot of problems. That can, uh, some of these toxins, which have been around, like you know, PCBs, for example, banned in 1979, are still uh, in the system because they don't metabolize. And these can affect the uh, hormones like leptin, um, right. which obviously, Mike, you could speak a lot more to that than I could, those, these hormone disruptions. But yeah. um, basically, these toxins, so I cut out the fish, and then I just did eggs, and I was doing eggs from a, a guy that lived down the road that had them running around his backyard uh, because I I'd found that the, I'd read that the nutrition was a little bit better, like the vitamin D, because they're actually getting sun, unlike most sure. you know, chickens that have cooked in America. So I thought that might be a little bit better. Um, so I was doing the chickens for a while and then, you know, I just don't think you need the, uh, exogenous, um, external, uh, cholesterol. I think there's other problems with, with the animal protein itself and also the ethics as well. I mean, people say, well, what's wrong with an egg? Cause you're not hurting your chicken, but you really are, you know, they're killing all the baby chicks as they come through, of course. And then what right. do they do after the, uh, the chickens, I said to the guy, well, what do you do after the, um, the hens stop laying eggs? Cause they only lay for about two years, but they might live right. about 12. Right. He's like, oh, right. well, they're like pets to me, so I wouldn't eat them. I'm like, oh, cool. He's like, yeah, give them someone else to eat. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. You, like, man, I, I wouldn't kill you. I'll just have my best friend kill you, you know? <laughs> right. right, right. So, yeah, I wouldn't right. eat them like that, you know? So, like, yeah, I wouldn't do that to your dog. Wait a minute. So, um, you know, like a health thing again and the, and the ethical thing and, mm. and also the environment. And to me, it's like even if you could pick tiny little holes in any one of the arguments, like if you combine all the arguments together, I mean, it's just, to me, it's like, it's not why are you not eating it, but why would you eat it? I mean, you're only doing it because it's just like, that's what you've been taught. That's what you've been raised in the advertising. And, you know, what we found now in the research that we're doing for this documentary is that a lot of, of the meat consumption is driven by male identity. Um, so it, it, it predates all the government recommendations and the advertising, right. which are also significant. But a lot of the meat eating goes back to, you know, who am I as a person, as a human, where do I stand on the planet? And also, who am I as a man in particular? You know, two out of ten um, vegans or plant-based eaters are men and eight out of ten are women. So a lot of it goes back to who am I, you know, who am I as a man? Which and then is, uh, prob- probably one of those two is to target eight of those women. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like going to yoga. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, was just about, I was just about to say he's a vegan yoga instructor, and he's helping yeah, yeah. them, you know, with their forward bends and everything, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, also, you're you're very. What, what do you think about this whole paleolithic movement, right? The paleo diet is very popular right now, and so forth. And, and I know you're from our mutual friend John Joseph and uh, Rob Roll, Rich Roll. I know you you know a lot about some of the pitfalls in the paleolithic ideas. So I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I think they're doing some things right, you know, so they're, they're cutting out a lot of the processed food. You know, you, you can't blame all of the health problems in America on animal foods. I think, you know, yeah. a large portion of it is also uh, the processed food and a lot of crap, even like loads of sugar and loads of white bread. And anytime you're extracting a lot of, you know, crap out of something and, and just eating that purely because our brains are, uh, are there to recognize fat, sugar, and salt, um, and we're kind of playing on that, right? The companies realize what our bodies want, and so they, you know, they no chop doubt. the testicles off, off, the, off the bulls to make the meat more fatty, and they make sugary drinks and, you know, everything to try and mess with our, you know, take advantage of our senses. Um, so that's, that's a lot to blame. So they've cut out that, which is good. Most paleo people cut out the milk, which is, I think, you know, in my view, one of the worst things you could be consuming. Um, so I think they've got those things right. Uh, I think they're way off the mark thinking that we need, you know, all of these animal products. It's one, it's just not, you know, it's not what the science shows these days, uh, the latest medical science. Um, and obviously they, they would argue what well, the science has done on, on meat that's um, got antibiotics and hormones, but you still get, for example, when you cook, you still get the heterocyclic amines, uh, which are a known carcinogen when you cook the meat. It doesn't matter whether that was eating grass or, the cow is getting a massage or whatever, you're still getting right. that when you cook the meat. So there's, right. there's still a lot of the problems. You're still getting the bacterial endotoxins, uh, which cause inflammation. That inflammation damages the endothelium, which is what produces nitric oxide and to a lesser degree sure. something called prostaglandin, which mm-hmm. is a, a vasodilator. So now you're not getting as much blood flow and you're not getting as much uh, oxygen and nutrients to your muscles. If you, know, if you want to be an athlete, you don't want to be causing that arterial inflammation. Um, so it doesn't really matter that it's grass-fed and, and more natural um, in that sense that you're eating the meat. It's still got a lot of problems. You might be cutting out a little bit. And it's just not scientifically accurate. I mean, you know, Long Cordain said that uh, everyone ate this way, you know, 55% of their uh, calories from animal foods or meat. Um, everyone ate this way. He says that uh, prior to 10,000 years ago, no one was eating grains. Uh, and both of these statements are emphatically not true. So, and if you look at the latest science, um, they're doing a lot of more microscopic anthropology. So they're looking at dental plaque, and they're finding grains far previous to 10,000 years ago. So his statements are just emphatically not true, and it's not based on, on current science. Yeah, it kind of it kind of doesn't make that much sense anyway. Given that if, if if humans are so poorly adaptable, we wouldn't really wouldn't have survived as a species, right? So I mean, if you can't, right. if you can only, I mean, if you could, if you only have, if you only thrive on certain foods, then would have died off as a species a long time ago because you didn't always have access to those things. Right. I mean, clearly, you know, we can eat. You know, quite a lot of people can eat quite a lot of meat, and some of them do okay. I mean, quite a few people can smoke and not get lung cancer. Right. Right. You know, but right. a lot of people do, and so. You know, is there a way that some people can do okay? Yes, but I don't think it's the healthiest diet, and it's certainly not the the diet that we should be having. Um, now, how, how is how is your diet set up? Because a lot of vegans, as I'm sure you can attest to this, or people who try to follow a plant-based diet, make a lot of common mistakes, such as eating a lot of processed food, like you were talking about, so a lot of fake meats and fake uh, yeah. fake cheese yeah, pizzas, I mean, yeah, things fine. like that. Yeah, I try and focus, uh, you know, on whole foods mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, I don't count calories anymore, and I don't, I don't I personally don't 
count uh, I don't look at percentages really I still right. eat you know quite a bit of fat but mainly from whole foods from nuts and seeds and stuff like that um, you know perhaps if I was fighting I'd probably be a little bit more scientific about it but I feel good my endurance improved when I switched my strength improved um, you know I've always had a pretty weak chest and the most I got up to, you know, some some people when I give when I give my talk and I tell them the uh, strength gain, there's got there's guys in the audience that are laughing at me because of how little I can lift, and then there's other people <laughs> in the audience going, "Wow, that's a lot of weight," you know. Depends who you are who's listening, but I've always had a pretty right, small right. chest and a pretty strong neck. But yeah. um, the most I got up to for dumbbell press was 105 pounds in each hand for five reps, and uh, which again. Some people that's the last, but it's not enough. You know, I'm not, I'm not obviously, I'm not boasting about that amount because it's not that much. But um, <laughs> two weeks after I switched, uh, I went to 115 pound dumbbells for six reps, and that was two weeks later. Now I can't really attribute exactly what that is, and it's purely anecdotal. Sure. But there was a significant mm-hmm. increase, uh, and I'd been stuck on 105 pounds for like two years and never been able to increase it. Um, and I went to 115 pounds. And then in terms of the endurance, you know the. Obviously, you guys know the battling ropes. I think it's a 50-foot rope. Yeah. I can't right. remember how many. I think it's like two inches. Yep. Yeah, there's a place um, over here that I used to train, a really good training place called Innovative Results, and they do you know, all that type of – they train a lot of UFC fighters and professional yeah. athletes. And if you got um, 10 minutes of doing that, not, not really fast, but you've got to get the wave like down to the end. If you did 10 minutes nonstop, you got your name on the wall. If you got 20 minutes, you could put like 20 minutes in parentheses. Well, about six to eight weeks after I switched – and before I was struggling like on 10 minutes, even though I was training for fights, I was still not, I was struggling on 10 minutes, right? And um, about six to eight weeks after I switched, I was able to do the battling ropes nonstop for an hour. Wow. And my hands were completely blistered and yeah. bleeding, but I was able to like keep going for an hour. So it could be something else, you know, but the only thing that I can see that changed, and again, it's anecdotal, uh, was my diet. So from the science that I've seen and my personal experience, you know, I'm a big believer in the benefits of a plant-based diet. Can you yeah. give us a breakdown? Just like, let's say, what, what does an average day look like for you, yeah. breakfast, lunch, dinner? Uh, you know, I do oats a lot with some uh, almond butter, you know, and some fruit in it, maybe bananas, raisins, something like that. Um, I do use protein powder still. You know, I know some of the hardcore guys are not into doing any protein powder at all. So after workouts, I usually do banana, dates, protein powder, a little bit of creatine. Uh, I definitely think creatine is something that can help athletes. You know, I'm not 100% convinced on its long-term safety. I don't really know, but uh, in terms of athletic benefits, I think that exists. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's pretty I think it's pretty safe as far as most supplements go. It's it's, it's definitely the most well researched nutrition supplement, and they seem to keep finding more and more potential benefits for it. So I think it's I think it's a pretty safe one for most people. So I, I do take that, you know, because uh, I, I feel that helps um, based on what I've read. Um, so I usually do like a you know a little bit of protein powder after workout. I use Sun Warrior personally, but there's a bunch of different mm-hmm. uh, good plant based ones out there. Uh, in fact, Mike, you got your own. One coming out now? Have you got that out? I've, uh, you know, I use Growing Naturals. I just like the taste a little okay. bit more than Sun Warrior. Sun Warrior is good quality for sure. The Growing Naturals is just more of a taste preference. And I, I've had some discussions with them about putting together a blend. So I, I, I'm building yeah. my supplement line now. I don't know when that'll take. These, these as, as you know, with the documentary you're working on, these things always take a lot longer. 
than you would yeah. like them to. Yeah. So I'm still, yeah. I'm still in the, I'm still in the early stages uh, I'll have of to that. Check that uh, the growing natural. I have to check that one out. But there's a bunch of different plant-based, you know, options and different prices. Yeah, there's you know, good options. There's definitely. there's definitely stuff out there, and you know, people are so convinced on this whey protein, but you know, there's some problems with that. So I think it's better to get on a plant-based one, even if you're not going to go vegan. You know, more moving to more of a plant-based diet, I think, uh, c- can really help. So, um, you know, I do beans <clears> and rice. I do lentils. Um, I do, you know, people, I say tofu, and people are like, oh, soy, you can't have soy. Um, but I still do a little bit of uh, tofu sometimes. Or I actually prefer tempeh. I think it's a little well, well, what's your take, me. actually, on soy? What's your take on soy yeah. and the estrogen argument from the research uh, you've I, done? I mean, I, I think that uh, a limited amount of soy, I think if you have more than – seven servings a day there can be problems based on what i've read but right um you know they're phytoestrogens you know if people are worried about estrogens they should probably be worried about the animal estrogens that they're eating and the meat that they're eating so yeah you know obviously obviously there's one there's the who are who are generally fatter i should be careful what i say but females are generally fatter than males right and so right. that estrogen helps that uh, that fat a little bit right so when they when they have steer, and a st- the difference between a steer and a bull is they chop the testicles off. So even if you've got grass-fed and you've got no um, exogenous, uh, they usually inject uh, estrogens and testosterone or androgens into cattle to grow the meat and to grow the fat. But the, even if you didn't have that and you had grass-fed, they still chop the testicle off to, for a couple of reasons, but one of them is to uh, make the meat a little bit more fatty. And so obviously you've got a, a greater ratio of uh, estrogen uh, and so if you're consuming that, the animal estrogen is much more like your own estrogen and have estrogenic right. effects on your body. Right. Um, the soy, uh, the phytoestrogens, which basically means plant estrogens, in soy does have some effects on your body like estrogen, but it also fills up the estrogen receptors in positive ways Right. Uh, in other instances. So, you know, I think a little bit of soy um, is fine. Uh, sorry, the more natural it is, obviously, like, Rather than a soy isolate or something, I right. think uh, tempeh or um, you know edamame, maybe a little bit of tofu. Uh, yeah, so in moder- moderation, basically, it's not a big concern. Yeah, moderation. I don't think it should be like every day, you know, like right. two, two right. meals a day or something. Um, but you know, people say, oh, well, you shouldn't have soy. I can't be vegan. Well, you can still be vegan or eat a plant-based diet and not have any soy at all. I don't know about yeah, you right. guys. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't have soy. I. 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 I'll eat soy or tempeh if I. Or tofu or tempeh if I'm out for dinner. But I don't necessarily right. buy it that often and have it at home. I like to have right. a variety of legumes, nuts and seeds, vegetables, etc. The, yeah. the the research I came across on soy was basically that it was two. There was two things that stuck out. One was a doctor who who used to use it actually with patients when he gave them testosterone therapy, because he found that it helped block aromatization, so blocked the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. Basically, right. for the reasons that you brought up, the, the phytoestrogens, which have about one one-thousandth the power of, of chemical estrogen, would dock into the receptor and then right. block other estrogens from picking up on those receptors. So that would actually have right. a lowering effect. There was, right. there was an eight-week study with men where they had them consume. I forget, a, I forget how much soy protein isolate it was, but uh, there wasn't any increase in estrogen or lowering of testosterone after that. Now, some could say, well, eight weeks isn't long enough, but there should have been something in eight weeks. You know, there should have been some of that. Do you, do you know if it was, uh, was it statistically significant or? Yeah, it, it wasn't. I mean, it, it wasn't statistically significant at all. They didn't even mention, yeah, there was basically no change. So, yeah, and then, you know, there's been, I mean, I've probably seen, even this year they've come out with a couple of studies 
I think one was at the end of 2012, one was in 2013, with the, both the testosterone and free testosterone of vegan men. Um, I know there was an older one, but there's, you know, there's only like 200 people, but there's been a couple more recent ones. I can't name them right now because I don't have the computer up, but there's been a couple this year showing that vegan men, even consuming uh, soy products, had higher testosterone than their vegetarian and meat-eating counterparts, including free t- free, higher free testosterone. Hmm, that's interesting. I've seen some stuff that says the reverse, but I don't know what kind of studies they were, so it's it's hard right. to say. But what do you, what do you think about uh, this really low-fat, low-protein vegan diet? Is that the kind of thing you follow, or because you said you eat quite a bit of nuts and seeds, or are you a more of a proponent of more fat in your diet, more protein in your diet? No, I have. Yeah, I'm not really on that. I mean, a lot of the doctors that we've interviewed have been kind of on the low-fat. Right. Um, I, I'm a little bit on the higher protein, higher fat side than those guys. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I, you know, some of those people don't do any oils at all. I still, uh, I still, I do less oil than I used to, but I still do oils, um, still do protein, still do the protein powder. You know, I think it depends what your goals are, really. I think, right. you know, to right. be an athlete, I think, uh, and here's a lot of things. So let's, uh, let's say you, you say why a human should be eating 10% protein. Well, if you're on 4,000 calories... Well, that's 400 calories, right? Right. But let's say on 4,000 calories, as a, let's say a natural human, whatever you want to say natural is, but we should be moving around more, right? Right. So if you think that we should be eating 400 calories from protein and you think we should be moving around a lot, but now you've got an individual who's sedentary and works in an office and only works out a few times a week and, now, and he's fat or like 50 pounds overweight and needs to lose weight, well, how many does he, does he have a lower protein requirement? You know, because maybe he should only be eating 2,000 calories because he's trying to lose weight or 2,500 calories, right? right? So to me, like, I don't see the problem with supplementing with a little bit of protein in order to maintain, you know, enough protein, even if you agreed, and, and I'm not saying that 10% is the right number, I'm just saying even if you agreed that 10% is the right number, if you think that you should be moving around more back in the day a lot and we're naturally supposed to move around more, which I'm sure we are, you know, 4,000 calories, now we drop it to 2,000 calories, does your protein then drop in half necessarily? And I would say no. You know, so for most people, they're not moving around that, that much. And so some people might be doing okay on eating 50 bananas a day, but that's because <laughs> they're having enough calories, you know? So they might be okay on 5 or 10% protein, but they're having 5,000 calories a day. You see right. what I'm saying? So Right. right. And then again, you know, what's, how's that going to affect them in the long run as well? You know, yeah, like, right. Is yeah, that I mean, sustainable that's, that's 10, 20 years from now? Yeah, exactly. No, I think I think one thing one one thing that's great about working out hard is that it, it gives you a real barometer of whether your diet is working for you or not. So I mean, if I'm right. getting weaker in the gym every week and I have no energy and I feel like crap all the time, then there's something wrong with my diet. Either I'm not making the right choices, or the macronutrient breakdown is not optimal. You know, something's going on there. And then same thing with the reverse. When you when you have things dialed in, you know it because you go into the gym, you're stronger, you feel good, your skin looks healthy, your mood is good, you look vibrant, and you know, people see you and you look healthy. So it's, it's, it's not too complicated to determine, you know, whether something's working for you or not. If you feel like crap, then, then it's, it's a battle of attrition. You're not going to be able to sustain it. You, know, you, you have to feel good on whatever plan right. you're on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I know I feel good. And I, there's a couple of things I make sure I you know, have. Uh, I have a B12 supplement once a week, 2,500 micrograms. I, um, I eat a Brazil nut or two every day for selenium. Yep. I, eat, yep. uh, I eat dulse every day for iodine. Um, pretty much, I put them in my smoothie. I do have a smoothie uh, at least once a day, usually, right. uh, with a whole bunch of vegetables in it. But I'll put uh, amla, which is um, 
Indian gooseberry powder, which is real high in antioxidants. Right. Uh-huh. Um, although that could be just in vitro and not in vivo. But anyway, I put that in. I put a Brazil right. nut. Right. I usually put two Brazil nuts in. I go a little bit of dulse. So there are like certain things that I throw in every day to make sure I'm getting it. And uh, if I'm not getting enough sun, I do a vitamin D, uh, D2. And then uh, I also do an algae-based uh, DHA supplement as well. So there are things that I like throw in there. Um, yeah, there's actually there's actually a good vegan D3 available now. I'll send you some information about it. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, awesome. I, said, uh, I saw a little bit about um, – Yeah, Country Life has one now. It's 5,000 IU per tablet, so it's pretty high dose. So I'll send you some yeah, info I've about that. I've read a couple of studies. Uh, I'm not sure. Again, I'm not that au fait on D2, V3. I know a little bit about it, but I'd seen mm-hmm. that – if you weren't deficient and in low doses, um, D2 wasn't that different. If you were very low in D, then D3 was far superior if you're doing, like, mega doses to get it back in. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. But, but again, like, unsustainable, uh, sustaining a decent level if it's already okay. I read that D2 wasn't that different. But, again, you know, there might be other literature that I've missed on that, so I'm not, I'm not too sure. Okay, that's interesting. I'll look into that. Well, we know you have to go. I'd love to have you come on back again, and we'll, we'll talk more about this kind of stuff. So whenever, yeah, wherever you, we, know, we know you have, a, you have a lot going on in your life right now. Also, you're, you're work, just briefly, you're working on a documentary. Is there anywhere people can go for updates? you have a Facebook fan page or a Twitter account or anything uh, you like know, that? We haven't, we haven't got it yet. The best thing would probably be just to follow uh, me on Facebook. That's Lightning Wilkes. The documentary is okay. called The, the Game Changers. And, you know, we're looking at me and why it's uh, so prevalent in our society, why we think we need it, why it's basically about myths and we're busting the myths. You know, why do we think we need all this meat to be strong? You know, five years ago, I would have walked into a vegan restaurant. In fact, I did and said, look, there's no real meat here. I'm not eating one meat here. I don't want to get, I don't want to get weak, you know. So, obviously, I was following what we call the bro science, you know. Yeah. Now I'm reading, I'm reading the real science. So, we're trying to get that word out there. So, it's, it's called the Game Changer. And that'll be coming out sometime next year. But it's, it's nice for me, honestly, as someone who's been doing a plant-based diet for a long time, to see guys like you and so forth. So it's it's it's, it's cool. So uh, that documentary is gonna. That sounds great. We'll 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 keep our listeners updated. Love to have you come back on. I'm sure there's more questions that'll arise after people hear what you have to say. Yeah. And then uh, you know maybe we'll have some uh, differing points of view on one episode at some point where we can just have a healthy debate on different things so that people get. Oh, I'd love, I'd love uh, anytime yeah. you get a paleo guy on at the same time. I'd love yeah. to have a, a debate on that too. Yeah, because I mean, what yeah. we try to do with the show is just give people good information and let them decide rather than try exactly. to run to cram anything down. But uh, thanks a lot, James. Really appreciate it. And also, uh, what's the name of your gym in Laguna Hill? It's uh, Lightning MMA. LightningMMA.com is the website if anyone wants okay. to come down and get a free week. Sounds oh. great. Thanks again, buddy. We appreciate right, it. Thanks a lot, man. Okay. Thanks, sincere. Thanks, Mike, hey. for having me. Take care, man. Pleasure. Okay. Take care. Day. Bye-bye. And that's our friend James Wilkes. Very smart guy, very interesting guy, and we'll oh, yeah. definitely have him come back on again. And, you know, we'll get – some of you are probably thinking, well, uh, when are you guys going to have a paleo guy on? I was like, we'll have a paleo, a paleo guy on, you know. Yeah, and I think is we're not just trying to have people on just for the sake of, you know, what's working for them and yeah. just their own agenda. We want to have people who can actually bring something intelligent to the table and actually right. spark some thoughts of this. And it's not about trying to have a war of, you know, the war of diets and, you know, the paleo people versus the vegans and sincere. And Mike, which, where, where do you stand? And it's not even about that. It's just like trying to provide you guys with as much information as possible. And as Mike just said, then letting you make a decision on your own. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think the key ingredient is we want people that walk the walk. 
So exactly. some guys, some guys going to come on here, or some ladies going to come on here and talk about how great their nutrition plan is. You know, they they better have some personal results to back it up. Exactly, and, and not just like, well, I feel better. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, there are a lot of things I do in life that make me feel better, but it's not necessarily something I'm going to bring on this show and tell you guys. You should the, try the whole, the whole feel better could be faking it. It's just like, I exactly. feel better. Yeah, once they get off the call, they're like, oh. Or they'll sign feeling better to whatever they're doing in order to take their minds off the stuff that makes them feel like crap even more. So it's like some substitute or something like that. So it's, and like I said, it's just a bunch of anecdotal things and these people haven't tested anything or seen what their markers are. Then right. all you're going to do is regurgitate what you saw on a DVD or you saw a documentary on Netflix, then that's just right. not going to cut it. You know, you're not getting on the show doing with that match. No, no. You know, that's, so. that's what I like about James. You can tell this guy's done a lot oh, of yeah, research. Yeah, he's done the he's, research, man. He's, he's come to some conclusions and, you know, things are working for him. And he's, he's not some slouch. He's a former professional athlete, so he, he has the discipline to figure things out and, and personalize it for him. So it's, right. I, I, I like seeing anyone that is well-researched and then puts that – put some action behind it and has good results. You know, I'm always intrigued with whatever they're doing, whether right. even if it's something I don't necessarily agree with, I, I'm intrigued by it. And I want to know more about it. Right. Okay. So what we'll do here is let's see, we're at the review sessions where reviews we're at about 83 now on iTunes. But one thing I didn't notice is that we're at 12 on Stitcher. <laughs> yes. What that means is we're at 95, which means only five more people. I was wondering if you were going to catch on to that. I, I, I saw that this week uh, on Stitcher, you know, cause yeah. now it seems like this past week or two, we've been getting more people emailing us saying, Hey man, I left a review for you guys on Stitcher. And so we get a lot more of that. So I went over there and looked and then I was like, Hmm, at the time I saw it, I think it was about 10. So I was like, and, it, and we had like 81 on iTunes. I said, that makes 91. So let's see. I'm going to talk to Mike about this. I hope he doesn't want us to go for another 100 on Stitcher. Cause, uh, no, no, first no. of all, that might take, for, that might take forever. No, 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 <laughs> we're not going to just keep giving away great free stuff forever. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of funny, too, because it's, remember before we started doing all the giveaways, come on, guys, please give us your reviews, or like 10 <laughs> or something like that. Then it's, then, it's like, then it's like, yeah, we're going to give you all this free information. All of a sudden, it's at 83. You know, it, just, it just cracks me up. And uh, I'm not making fun of people that are doing it. I mean, I, thanks a lot for the reviews. I just think it's funny what incentivizes <laughs> people. You know, it's just kind of like, obviously, people like the show, but asking someone to go give a review just because they like the show that's not quite going to go into the brain and make them remember to go do that. But then it's like, hey, we're going to give you this free lecture series, this free book, and so forth. Oh, well, I'm going to prioritize that right now. <laughs> yeah, but here's the one thing I do like. Here's the one thing I do like about that, though. What, what's happening now, people are not just leaving reviews. It's like they're actually, like, really getting a, some dialogue and conversation going with us behind the scenes, you know, when they send their screenshot yeah, or let us all, know. And they're really, you know, asking – you can tell they, they didn't just – hear it on the show and like, oh, I'm going to do a review, and then they stop listening to the show just to get right, their freebie right, there. Right, right. They've actually paid attention to the content, and they've listened to other shows. And there have been some people, like, they waited a while before they gave reviews. Like, look, I've been listening, but you know what? I bit the bullet and said, let me just go ahead and do a review because I really love what I'm hearing. And so it's not like someone just heard it one time, episode 10, and decided, like, oh, well, I'm getting my freebie, and then they just stopped listening <laughs> to the show. You know, no, you're I've right. had people come back and, like, talk about certain shows, like, in depth. I was like, wow, you, this person was paying attention. And it's not like right. one or two people, especially the last couple of weeks. It's like people have been coming with it. I, one dude did a marathon session where he listened to all, at that time, I think, 32 episodes. Right. God right. bless him. Because, you know, those first, <laughs> few, those, those first probably first 
28 episodes. They were about two hours long. So right. that, he's, a, he's a hell of a man. He had a great weekend. He did one of my he did one of my Netflix purging weekends where I was like, okay, I'm going to watch the entire series of Breaking Bad all that, in that, one week. That guy probably quit his job and told every loser in his life to F off. F your job. Screw you. <laughs> we, had, we had another guy who talked about how he commutes in Australia. He drives yeah. from being back to home a couple hours each way, and he said yep. that the podcast makes that bearable for him, and that that's really gratifying to hear, man. You know, that's the kind of stuff we. It's cool for us to think that you know we're both sitting in our respective living rooms or wherever in our house putting together some good shows, and it's it's really having that kind of impact on people. It's really cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like right now, I know we're being heard. We're being heard in over 114 countries now. When I looked at the stats. Yeah, so the reach is getting out there. Like, there's a lot of a lot of white spaces on Africa, but of course they got their own conflicts going on, and we're the <laughs> least we're the least of their worries right now. And then freaking right. Greenland, man! This, and I've heard other podcasters out there when they look at their stuff, like we can't capture Greenland. Like, what the heck? Do they not have internet in Greenland? So if you know someone in Greenland, tell them to listen to the show, so we can be one of the few, if not the only one, that's being picked up. The only podcast that's being listened to in Greenland. We gotta have it. <laughs> man. So if you got a cousin in Greenland, man, or even if you go in, if you go over to Greenland, turn on your phone and listen for two minutes just so we can get that say, bam, bitches, we got Greenland. What? <laughs> that is my that is my ultimate goal, man. I know we want to get a hundred reviews by the end of December. My ultimate goal is to get one damn download in Greenland. That's that's my mission in life. That's when I know we made it. <laughs> I don't even know anybody in Greenland. <laughs> I mean, I'm anybody there anymore. I'll have to look and see if I've ever had orders from there. I'm, I'm sure I've had, but I, who knows? Maybe I haven't. I'll have to look that up. And also remember, folks, you can still use coupon code LLA to get 10% off any of my nutrition supplements. That's my testosterone booster, my recovery oil, my systemic enzyme product, Restorezyme, with a potent extract of ginger. Help get rid of all those aches and pains so you get better results from your workouts, sleep better at night with the recovery oil. Testosterone booster, it just ramps up your sex drive, your mood, your workouts. So it's, it's a nice trifecta of nutrition supplements. So use that coupon code LLA to get 10% off that. And uh, how about on your end? And use the exact same coupon code when you go to newwarriortraining.com and you'll get 30% off of my digital download or my physical copy of my bodyweight DVD. And thanks to all of you that have purchased the DVD and their feedback has been great. I've had folks tell me like it's helping them with their children and helping them be more active and actually participate and be active with their kids. And I've even had um, a couple of people say, hey, man, this is actually great for my mom. And, you know, she's older and not necessarily wanting to go into a gym and be in that environment. It's a little intimidating and not necessarily wanting to lift weights. And this has been perfect. Some people have been like, I'm using this DVD when I'm traveling. So they appreciate the digital version so they can just take it with them anywhere. They don't have to worry about taking the physical copy with them. So thanks for the feedback. Um, I think I mentioned this in the last show. I'm very proud of that DVD for the fact of the people that it's touching. So thanks a lot for that. And, again, use coupon code LL and you get 30% off of that. You can get that. It's just in time for the holidays. I know everybody's traveling. You got folks going to parties and things like that, and you probably don't have time to go to the gym while you participate in all this, but you can perform some of these exercises on the DVD in a nice little private space. Well, you know what? You want to make it even more fun? You go to that office Christmas party? You want to make it fun? Challenge some of those drunk coworkers to do some of these exercises. There's nothing funnier than watching someone trying to do saber-tooth crawls while they're sloppy freaking drunk. So go ahead and let that the jackass that's next to you in the cubicle that's always making you have a crappy day and a crappy week, you know, that <laughs> the inhibitions tend to drop when they're at the Christmas party, then they act like they're your best friend. 
Go ahead and get your best friend to our Sabertooth Crawl Challenge. I think that'll be awesome. And make sure you get it on video and send it to Mike and myself, and we'll make sure we post it on our website. We'll make, we'll make your new best friend a superstar. <laughs> now, one thing about your video, it's a great video. I was there live, of course, when you recorded it because we were teaching that course together. And one thing I... One thing that's cool is when you're not instructing, you can you can when you're instructing, you're really paying attention to people's technique and so forth, and really making sure you're delivering. But when you get a chance to kick back and watch someone else instruct, you can kind of look at how the students are reacting to the content, how their body language is, and right. people were having a blast, man. People were laughing, they're having a good time doing all those exercises. So it's it, it was cool. You know, I knew that video would sell well just based on the students who were taking the course live, right. what kind of what, what their response was. So it's it's fun stuff, and I think that's one of the important things in training is when you've been working out for a long time, you have to find ways to keep things fresh without right. being idiotic. You don't want to do variety for the sake of variety where it's it's counterproductive, but you keep adding in these different ingredients, and it just keeps things more productive and enjoyable so you can sustain it. So you're telling me, Mike, that I can't get on a BOSU ball with you know, and do pistols while I have a barbell of 155 pounds over my head? I can't do pistols. Yeah, I like, I like to do one-legged <laughs> squats on a BOSU and then take my max that I can press overhead <laughs> with kettlebells and, you know, and do a sauce press. You know? <laughs> just, just to keep it more exciting. Because it's not, it's a, you know, heavy kettlebells pressing is just too easy. So Ooh, now when you on. Up. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, that guy. <laughs> YouTube so University, that? you gotta love it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's going to be our show for today, folks. Thanks again for all the feedback. You have a, a great December, great Don't week. Don't forget the formula. Don't forget the formula. The magic LLA formula is subscribe to the podcast, right. rate and review right. the podcast, right. listen to the podcast, then share the podcast. Four simple things. Yeah. One and final thing is it, it's only going to get better, folks. We've got some oh. serious guests in the pipeline. We've got Charles Poliquin. We've got Udo Erasmus. And we have some, if you're looking to get motivated for a great January, good start of 2014, you know, we have some pretty high-level guests that are going to be giving away some great info. It, it, keep hitting us up with your feedback. And, of course, you can always email us or you can hit us up on Twitter. And other than that, have a great week, everybody. We're looking forward to seeing you on the next show. Take care.